Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. On today's podcast, we're going to listen to the second of two talks I gave at a women's conference at Bethel Baptist Church in Fairbanks, Alaska. This talk is called Beautiful Eternal Truths, Counteracting Bad Ideas in Popular Media. share a little bit about my story and what brought me here. If you would have asked me 10 years ago if I would be writing a book or if I would have a a blog and a podcast that's focused around apologetics and theology, I probably would have said, what is apologetics? (laughs) And I, I would have said, you're crazy because I've always been a flaky artist. I've never been an intellectual type person at all. I've always been an artist. I've always been more of a creative type. And and so I never would have dreamed that I would be in this world. But God is so good in how he orders our steps, even in times that are so hard for us. It's, It's a story that I never would have written for myself. Never. But God wrote this story for me, and he's walking me through it. See, I was born into a Christian home. And my family was just a good Christian family. My parents were real Christians. They were authentic Christians, not perfect. My my raising wasn't perfect by any far stretch, but I regularly saw my parents reading their Bibles and living their faith out actively. They regularly repented in front of us if, if they had done something wrong, if they had sinned. This was an open kind of dialogue in our house, regularly walked in on them reading their Bibles, and they led us in Bible studies, and prayer was constant in my home. My mom worked and volunteered at a mission in L.A., and so she'd take us down and work the soup lines when I was 10 years old. It was just normal for me to go down on the weekends and work soup lines on Skid Row in L.A., and so it was just a regular part of my life watching my mom 
interact with drug addicts and, and drug dealers and prostitutes. And this was just normal. I was perfectly comfortable around homeless people because that's just how I was raised. In the summers, my dad would take us to New York and sometimes San Francisco, downtown LA and Hollywood, and we would do street outreaches. Like they're the people with the, the karaoke boxes preaching the gospel on the streets. <laughs> and I would sing to my little Sandy Patty tracks, you know, to, before the message. So, you know, if you want to know how to cut your teeth on, on performance, get stuck on a corner in Manhattan with a karaoke box at 16, and they say, we'll be back in an hour, <laughs> and you're singing your Sandy Patty songs and preaching the gospel. That was kind of my, that was my introduction to ministry and to performance, if you can call it that. So uh, I saw a lot of stuff happen in those years. I saw regularly drug addicts, drug dealers, prostitutes come to faith in Christ, and then I saw the gospel change their lives. I witnessed that as a young child. I watched pastors and other Christians I knew take homeless people into their homes. And, and this was just normal. This, that's what Christianity was to me. And the reason I set this up this way is because I think a lot of the drift from the gospel sometimes comes from people who have experienced abusive, overly legalistic, and even cultish upbringings within the church. And it causes a reaction, so they throw the whole thing out rather than trying to dissect and figure out what's the real thing. And so I'm very thankful to my parents. Again, wasn't perfect, but I'm very thankful that they modeled the real thing as best they could. It was, Christianity was real. So my faith wasn't blind. It wasn't just a blind leap of faith that wasn't informed by anything. It was informed by the power of the gospel. I saw it at work in people's lives, but it had never been tested intellectually. I didn't even know that was a category, if I'm honest. I didn't even know that for the vast majority of Christian history, it's been heavily on the intellectual side of the greatest thinkers and philosophers and theologians thinking these things through for 2,000 years. I just thought what I was born into was like what everybody's always done. And, and so I wouldn't discover how untested intellectually my faith was until I was in my 30s. Zoe girl was long done and I had a new baby. And so my husband and I had begun attending just your run-of-the-mill, non-denominational, evangelical church in the heart of Middle Tennessee where we live. And I was doing a little music after Zoe girl, a little solo music. And so the church had invited me to come sing one Sunday morning. And so I went to this church and, and I began to sing and immediately my husband and I sensed a really deep connection with this church. I'm sure you all can relate with this. When, when you go somewhere and it's like, man, these are my people. And then the pastor gave one of the most amazing sermons I've ever heard. It was a sermon on suffering. I can still remember the stories he told in the sermon. And it was unlike anything I had ever heard. He was very intellectual and he was a little bit outside the box and I liked that. My husband liked it, and we, we felt really at home in this place. We loved the people, and we really did find community there. And so about eight months later, the pastor approached me, and he invited me to be a part of what he called an inner circle-type study group. Uh, that would be the equivalent of a four-year seminary, was what he said. So when, you, when you're finished with this class, you will be equipped in the same way that someone who went to four years of seminary would be equipped. And boy, that sounded exciting to me because I was at a phase in my life where I was at home all the time with, with my little baby. I was used to going around the world. 
uh, singing and, and, and traveling and meeting all kinds of different people. And for the first time in a really long time, I was kind of just at home all the time, really isolated off. I'm sure a lot of new moms can relate to that feeling where you just want to see the outside world once in a while. And so this sounded so exciting to me because I wanted to study the Bible. I wanted to learn and, and I wanted more of what I was seeing at this place, this kind of out-of-the-box thinking, this intellectual thinking. And so I joined the class and, you know, figured out the babysitting, and I was so excited. And so in one of the first classes, the pastor revealed that he was actually agnostic, and he called himself a hopeful agnostic. In other words, I hope Christianity is true. I want to think that it is, but I'm unsure. I don't know. And what I realize now, and I didn't realize at the time, is that he was going through a process that people call deconstruction. Have you all heard that term, deconstruction? And it's, it's something that's happening with a lot of Christians right, right now. In fact, in our Mama Bear Apologetics book, we talk about deconstruction in our postmodern chapter. And the idea is that everything that you've ever believed, everything you've ever learned or been taught about God, about Christianity, gets deconstructed down to nothing. And then you build back up with either a new faith. Usually it's a completely different and new faith. You don't tend to, when you deconstruct, rebuild uh, the, the original one, which I'm kind of a rare bird that I did actually deconstruct and reconstructed to what I believe is historic Christianity. That's very rare, though. And so usually what happens is someone starts losing their faith bit by bit, questioning and questioning and questioning until there's nothing left, and then it, they either go into atheism or they just kind of affirm a very subjective version of Christianity. And that's what happened with this pastor. So in this class, I was basically witnessing this happen to him. Now, I mentioned that I'd been doing street ministry as a young girl, so I was used to hearing the arguments of atheists. I met atheists all the time on Hollywood Boulevard. Didn't phase me one bit because I just thought, well, they're atheists. Of course, they're not going to believe in God. But when a pastor who had spent eight months earning my trust and my respect started bringing up some of these same arguments against the existence of God, and in particular against the reliability of the Bible, because Let's just be honest, if you can get rid of the Bible, if you can push the Bible aside, then you can make it whatever you want it to be. And so a lot of the attack in this class was on the Bible. And so when he was the one that was making these arguments, it threw me because I really thought we were like simpatico. Like I thought we were really on the same page. So it blew my mind when he said that. But I didn't, I didn't want to be judgmental, you know. Okay, well maybe, you know, all right. Well, maybe he doesn't really mean that he doesn't really know and... You know, I just kind of made excuses like that. Well, throughout the course of the time I was in the class, which was really about four months, I lasted about four months, everything I had ever believed about God, about Jesus, and especially the Bible, was in a way put on this chopping block and just hacked to pieces with all kinds of arguments I had never heard before with logical arguments, with philosophical arguments, with historical arguments. And I had no answer because I was so used to debating people with the Bible. I would say, well, the Bible says, and if they didn't believe that, well, whatever. I guess they just don't believe it. But when the, the legs of the Bible were knocked out from under me, I didn't have anything else. And I couldn't even defend why I believed the Bible was the word of God or why I believed it was authoritative for my life. And so for about four months as I was in this class, I did my best 
to debate with this pastor. I wasn't very good at it, but I watched the 10 or 11 other people in the class over the course of my time there become completely persuaded that historic Christianity was not true and that all roads really do kind of lead to God. And they all became what's now called, that church went on to self-identify as a progressive Christian community. They changed their belief statement uh, to be really more about personal conscience than about objective truth. And so it was about, after four months, they invited the spouses to come to the class for one, for one. so you all know where this is going. Now, I, my husband was used to me coming home after every class going, oh, you won't believe what he said. And we, so he, he knew, but when he witnessed it for himself, we, we got in the car and he said, we're, we're done. You know, you're done, we're done. We're not raising our kids here, we're leaving this church. And I was very thankful um, for wifely submission in that moment. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. But it threw me into a dark night of doubt. Um, isolated now at home and away from the class and without a church community, the world got really dark. And what I don't think this pastor anticipated was that not only was it messing with my faith in the Bible and what I had always believed about Jesus, but I was just thinking, I mean, does God even exist at all? Is he even out there? I mean, is this every time I've been in a worship service and I felt those feelings and I, I felt those Holy Spirit shivers, you know, was that just synapses in my brain? Like he said, is that something I can just create by, you know, pinching my shoulder or something is Is that the same thing I would feel at a rock concert? What if those were just firing in in response to some kind of sociological stimuli? And I remember just sitting in the darkness. I would rock my little girl to sleep. And I just remember in the darkness singing hymns just into the darkness for the first time in my life, not even knowing if they were true. But I would just sing them. And I was doing everything I could to hold on to my faith. And I've shared this metaphor online, but it felt, and I saw it like in my mind, like being plunged into a stormy ocean with nothing. Like, have you ever all ever seen the movie, The Perfect Storm? It's an old movie. But at the end, there's just this huge wide shot of an ocean. And it's just like wave on top of wave. And you see the boat go down. And the last thing you see is just this little face just sink into the, I just gave away the whole movie. Spoiler, by the way, spoiler alert. (laughs) They all die. Okay. Should have led with that. But at any rate, (laughs) that's sort of the picture that I saw. It's just this last little face with nothing around. And I prayed and I said, God, I know you're there. Are you there? I know you're there. I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, I know you're there. (laughs) That send me a lifeboat. Because one thing I knew, I wasn't going to give up on my faith until I'd heard the opposing arguments. I knew that for every argument this guy had, there is somebody just as smart with as many letters behind his name or more that knows that argument and has an opposing view. And I need to find that person. And so I I asked the Lord to help me. And so I was driving in my car one day. And I heard this voice on the radio, and it was the most angelic voice I'd ever heard because it was a man that was addressing claim after claim after claim that this pastor had made that I had never heard before. I kind of thought he'd made it all up. But he was addressing these things almost in order. It was bizarre. 
And it was Ravi Zacharias. And so I was like, okay, whoever this guy is, I need to find, you know, his ministry and just at least hear what he has to say. And so I downloaded his app to my phone, and through that app, I found all kinds of amazing resources. I ended up finding a seminary that I took classes at for a few years, and I began to study and study and study and study because I had to know if what I believed was a lie. And you know what I discovered is that the historic claims of Christianity are true and that the Bible stands tall above the rubble of accusations that are being brought against it. It's textually true. It's been preserved accurately. What they told in the Bible, in the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, are true eyewitness accounts. For those to not be historical, boy, they were sure smart enough to get all the historical markers right. And my faith was restored. I still walk with a limp, like I mentioned. There, there are days, many, where I still pray, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I think about Jacob wrestling with God, and then he walked with a limp. I walk with a limp now, but God knew that too. He ordered this. I would never have wanted to be in that place. And I look back at the sovereign hand of God. To me, that's the strongest argument for his existence, is what he's done in my life. To, to know, I can see the smile on his face dropping me into that class that would send me into the darkest time of my life to be here with you today. I wouldn't be here with you today if that hadn't happened. And so that's why the things that I'm about to talk about are life and death for me. These are not just, you know, quips that I learned in Sunday school. The things that I'm sharing are wrought in the fires of doubt. And I believe that the Bible is true and it's the word of God and it's reliable and authoritative for our lives and it's good for us. And uh, so I want to share some biblical truths that counteract some of these pretty little lies. And interestingly, full circle moment here, it's the pretty little lies that actually got me here today because there was one night when I was in that kind of dark time. And by now, my son had been born. So this was probably 2011, somewhere in there. And I was rocking him. <laughs> a lot of dark doubt times when I was rocking my babies. And um, I had read a blog post that day that all my friends from this old church had shared. And I was, you know, already feeling isolated off and now I've lost all my friends and my community and everything. And they're all sharing this post and just raving on this post. And I read it and I was like, I know that's wrong, but I don't know how to articulate it. I know that whatever she's saying in this blog post is off, but I have no idea how to refute it. I don't know what's lying underneath it. I don't know what's informing it. I just know it's wrong. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in here that have felt that way. And so I sensed on my life in that moment a call from God to study. And I did not know what that was going to look like or what it was for. I didn't dream I'd ever be able to look at a blog post like that and refute it. I just knew that God was calling me to study. And so that's why I'm here, because I, I accepted the call. And it's been hard and it's been long, but it's been so worth it. So pretty little lie that we looked at, number one, you are enough. The dead cat layer that's informing that. 
And if anyone's listening on recording, you'll have to go back to the first talk to know what I mean by the dead cat layer. <laughs> That's informing you are enough is the idea that people are basically good. But the truth is, the biblical truth is that Jesus is enough. And to really understand why Jesus is enough, we have to go way back to the beginning. We have to understand something called original sin. Have you ever wondered why you have to teach kids to tell the truth, but they seem to be experts at lying from the second they can talk? Have you ever constantly have to nag them to share their toys, but somehow they pop out of the womb ready to give a master class in manipulation? Like, kids are the best manipulators. It's because of original sin, because we're all born sinners. And we talked in the first talk about how it's just kind of obvious to see this by looking around in the world or becoming a parent that will, that will tell you that your kids are little sinners. But what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible really teach this? Like, this is important for us to know this. There are so many verses that speak to this. So I'm just going to pull out a few. But these are verses that I would recommend if you have your Bible here, your your actual Bible, turn to these verses, highlight these verses, because these are conversations you are most likely going to have to have with people in our world. It's, it's not enough anymore to just say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Do you want to receive that? We have to back up a few steps now because of these cultural lies. We have to explain why they even need that. A lot of people are going to hear the gospel and say, why do I even need that? And so you're going to have to have the conversation about original sin with someone. So let's look at some of these verses. The first is Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. If you have your Bible, turn there and we'll uh, highlight, you know, highlight it for sure. And then we'll read through it. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I want to highlight some of this here. It says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. All of us were, were literally dead to God, dead in our trespasses and sins. There wasn't anybody that was born with, with a sinless existence. Among whom we all once lived, every single one of us. There's nobody exempt from it. And by nature, the Bible says we're children of wrath. We are by nature deserving of God's wrath. Let's look at Genesis 8.21, which tells us that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I know this sounds like a lot of bad news, but we're going to get to the good news in just a second. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is Jonathan Edwards, a theologian that many of you have probably heard of. It's the sexy man, ladies, right there. (laughs) And he wrote a book on original sin. (laughs) And here's what he wrote in his book on original sin. He said, the word translated youth in this verse signifies the whole of the former part of the age of man, which commences from the beginning of life. So in other words, from birth, the intention of our heart is evil. That word youth connotates all of that. Let's look at Psalm 14, 2 through 3. It says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
So there's nobody. Nobody gets a pass on this. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. By nature, our hearts are desperately sick. By the way, that's why you should not follow your heart because your heart is sick. Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us that the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Now, let's do do a little heart check right now. How are you feeling about this? (laughs) Because, you know, this is, doesn't sound like great news, right? This is something that in our culture, we don't like hearing this. And I just want to just reassure you that sometimes I read things in the Bible where I'm like, oh, I don't like that. In fact, when I was writing this talk, there was a verse I was going to use and I'm like, oh, I don't want to use that one. I don't really like it. And I'm like, no, no, I have to use it because I don't like it. See, that's the, that's the point. The Bible being authoritative has the right to challenge us. It has the right to contradict us. Because if you read the Bible and nothing contradicts your sensibilities, chances are you've just created a God that's in your image and rather than the other way around. So in a real relationship, married people, you know this, (laughs) you contradict each other a lot. That's what a real relationship is. God God is going to contradict you. The Bible is going to contradict. It's not going to resonate with you every time you read it. There are going to be things you read that you're like, (laughs) oh, and that's good. Because it's supposed to challenge us. Remember, our hearts are sick. We're not going to like some of this stuff. And I just want to encourage you to push through that if you're feeling that right now, because we're about to get to some really good news. Okay, here's that sexy man again. And in his book, he talks about how many Bible verses, like all throughout scripture, it just talks about us like we're really pretty broken, you know? And he wrote this. Why should man be so continually spoken of as evil, carnal, perverse, deceitful, and desperately wicked if all men are by nature as perfectly innocent and free from any propensity to evil as Adam was at the first moment of his creation? I mean, that's kind of common sense, right? I mean, if the Bible continually talks about us this way, why would we assume otherwise? So now... A little bit more bad news before we get to the good news. So Romans 5.12 tells us that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So this is how it got to us, right? This is how it was passed from Adam and Eve to us. They're our first parents. We all descend from Adam and Eve. And so when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they passed that spiritual DNA, so to speak, onto us. And so the Bible says that here. It came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death spread through sin. So death spread to all men. So we wouldn't have died. We, if you want to know if you have original sin, ask yourself if you are capable of dying. And if you are going to die one day, it means you're a sinner because sin is what brought death into the world. Death wouldn't have been here otherwise. So if you're going to die, then you are a victim of original sin. Well, not a victim. That's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. So that's how it spread to us. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin is death, right? And we all are going to die as wages of that sin. But the free gift of God, this is the good news, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the hardest things to convince people of in our culture. Remember all those pretty little lies? They're all about how beautiful and adorable and perfect and wonderful we are. 
that's in the water we're swimming in. It's going to be very hard to convince people of this as you share the gospel. But that is good news because Jesus is enough. Can I just tell you all something? I know deep in my soul that I am not enough. And all of those messages that tell me, oh, no, you're beautiful. You are amazing. All of these things, they fall short because I know that I'm not. I know how selfish I am. I know how much I want to get up in the morning and be selfish with my time. I don't want to invest time helping my kids with their homework. I don't, you know, it's hard. It's, it's out of sacrificial giving that we do those things. Rachel Hollis in her current book talked about stuff like that, uh, just the, the, the mom stuff. And she says, it's just not in my wheelhouse. And then Jen Oshman, who wrote a review of her current book on the Gospel Coalition, wrote, yeah, that's not in anyone's wheelhouse. You know, <laughs> Living sacrificially is not in anyone's wheelhouse. This is stuff we have to work at. And, but that's why the good news is that Jesus is enough, because we know we'll never be good enough. Our best is filthy rags to him. But when we accept this free gift then Jesus becomes enough. And the Bible says that we become the righteousness of God. He looks at us and sees us as perfectly righteous. And then there's adoption language. He adopts us literally into his families. We can call the God of the universe Father. Oh my goodness. There's no other... If you look at all the ancient religions, there's no Father in ancient religions. There's no Father God. So the bad news becomes good news when we see it's the cure. It's about the diagnosis, isn't it? Think about a sickness. If you don't diagnose the sickness, then you can't get the cure. You can't find the right medicine to treat the sickness. So that's why it feels like bad news when we hear all these things. But it's actually good news because it's the diagnosis. But we have a cure, and if someone doesn't accept, no, I'm not sick, I don't, I'm not sick, I don't have, it's fine. Well, they're going to die because they don't take the cure. So Jesus is enough. The next truth we're going to talk about is the counter to the lie that you are the boss of you, which really has to do with life being about what makes us happy. And so the counter to that is that the Bible is the boss of you. I don't know why that one makes me giggle. It just does. It makes me giggle. So since Jesus is enough, right? Since he's the one who claimed to be God and resurrected himself from the dead, he gets to say who's the boss of us. Jesus is the boss of who's the boss of us, right? And so in a moment, I'm going to show that I believe he says the Bible is the boss of us. But before we get to that, I I mentioned that we were going to talk a little bit more about fruit, See, Jen Hatmaker, in her uh, interview with Pete Enns, said that when a doctrine, a person, or a belief, you know, you're just kind of not sure if there's tension there, look to the fruit. And then she sort of identifies bad fruit with bad experience. She talked about depression and things that people experience, which again is under, underneath that is that idea that really what God wants is for you to be happy. Uh, But let's look at the verse in full context that she was quoting from. It comes from Matthew 7, 15 and 16. And very ironically, it starts out by saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then Jesus says, You will recognize them 
by their fruits. So the key question that we have to ask here is what did Jesus mean by fruit? Did he mean something that will make you um, feel better? Something that will be soothing to your soul? What's Jesus's definition of fruit? Well, Jesus teaches that good fruit is obedience and bad fruit is sin. And we can find this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is equating obedience and doing his will with the person who's bearing fruit and pleasing him. And then a a little earlier in that chapter, John the Baptist says to the group of people he's talking to, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So it's very clear from John the Baptist that good fruit means keeping with repentance. And the fruit that's cut off from the tree isn't someone who doesn't feel good about the teaching of scripture, but it's someone who doesn't obey it. In John 15, eight through 10, John records Jesus saying, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, So I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So Jesus is saying here that bearing much fruit by keeping my commandments, you will abide in my love. And what's really interesting is that in the Greek, there's two different terms that can express the idea of bad. And the word that both John and Jesus used is paneros, which connotates wicked or evil. So if you put wicked and evil, that paneros word, with fruit, basically what it is is bad fruit is immoral behavior. So actually, the verse that she's using to justify her new beliefs actually means the opposite and actually commands us to, to call out false teaching like what she's saying based on how it lines up with the teachings of Scripture. So Jesus is the boss of who's the boss of us. What did Jesus say about scripture? Well, obviously when Jesus was commenting on scripture, he was commenting on the Old Testament scriptures, which is what they had. But he predicted the New Testament by telling his disciples, uh, the, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I've taught you. And then he spent 40 days with them after his resurrection, teaching and, and, and preparing them for that. So the New Testament was predicted. So I believe we can apply what he's saying to both Old and New Testament. But Jesus said, the Bible is the word of God. If there's one thing Jesus affirmed over and over again, it's that the Old Testament scriptures were the word of God. In Matthew 15, 4, he referenced several commands from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy by saying, for God said, and then he's quoting Old Testament prophets. He said, for God said, honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. 
In Mark 7, 8 through 13, he criticized the Pharisees for leaving the commandment of God and adding their own traditions to scripture. He told them that they void the word of God by their traditions. So he doesn't even say you void the scriptures or you void the, the oracles of the prophets. He says you void the word of God. In Matthew 22, 31 and 32, just before quoting Exodus 3, 6, he says, have you not read what God said to you? Jesus assumes all over the place that the Old Testament scriptures are the very words of God to people. And Jesus is the boss of what's the boss of us, right? This is further shown with Jesus's it is written statements. This is hard for us to understand as modern Americans, but in that culture, for him to say it is written, he's affirming that the Bible is the word of God. Theologian John Wenham wrote, it's clear that Jesus understood it is written to be equivalent to God says. He's a New Testament scholar who wrote a great book on all this. And so it is written or its equivalent is used by Jesus and his apostles over 90 times in the New Testament. It is written, carried a weight of authority for Jesus. And this is proven out with his temptation experience in the wilderness. When the devil came to tempt Jesus, what was the first words out of his mouth? It is written. And then Satan quotes scripture back to Jesus. And Jesus basically was in a battle with Satan over interpretation. Think about that. Same battle Eve had with the serpent. It was over, over interpretation. He loves to quote scripture. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, Satan's a better theologian or he, you know, than any. Like He can really twist those things in a knot. He knows the scripture. And he quoted the scripture to Jesus. So the battle was over interpretation, but Jesus didn't argue like, oh no, that's not the correct. He just said, it is written again. And three times Satan tempted him and three times he countered it with the authority of the scriptures. It is written. Andrew Wilson wrote a really great little book called Unbreakable. It's just almost like a booklet. It's, so, it's small, but it's very concise. And he writes about this scene. He says, consider the way Jesus fights. He has the resources of heaven available, yet he fights by using the authority of the scriptures. I mean, Jesus could have called an army of angels down from heaven, but he fought with scripture, with the word of God. The Bible is the boss of you and of me. The next lie that we're countering was you shouldn't judge, right? Which is underpinned by the greatest virtue in our culture being tolerance. But what's the truth that counteracts the lie is that you should judge rightly. So let's look at this Jesus quote that's, you know, the atheist's favorite Bible verse. (laughs) Judge not that you be judged. Often that's just plucked right out of its context and (laughs) stuck in our faces, But let's look at the whole context. So this comes from Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And again, if you've got your Bible, open it up, highlight this, because this is a conversation you will have. If you share your faith with anyone, you will have this conversation. 
So Jesus says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Jesus is saying here is not that we should never make judgments about what's going on with our brothers and sisters but that we should use extreme caution when we do so. At the end here, he says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The point is to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but to not be a hypocrite while you do it and to do it carefully and with really careful judgment. See, Jesus knows our fallen nature. He knows our profoundly sinful and prideful instincts. So he's giving instructions on how to lovingly and carefully confront each other. Because he also said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So he's actually commanding us to judge in this verse. But judge with right judgment. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 was writing to the church of Corinth. And Corinth was a hot mess. Okay, they were just, they were, a, they were a hot mess. There was sexual immorality. They were falling for all the stuff in culture. And so Paul was writing to how to kind of write some of these things and, and, and get the church in order. And he said, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? So guys, Christians, we're called to judge each other. We really are. It's so unpopular Like it goes against everything that we are being exposed to in culture, but we are called to judge each other. And I can tell you from personal experience that I had a good friend, good friend being a key here because it was somebody who knew me and loved me, who confronted me in some sin. And I was young and I didn't respond well. Poor thing. I feel bad for her because I would just like snapped at her or something. But because I knew she loved me by doing that, because she's not a confrontative person. She doesn't like doing that. And I knew that about her. And I knew that it took every ounce of courage for her to confront me because she loved me too much to let me stay in it. And I didn't respond well. But I do believe that it's because she did that, that after a little time went by, I did repent of that sin because she loved me enough to judge me. And I think when she told me I threw everything I knew about her back in her face, did not go well. And the reason I say that is because it might not go well, but I, I think it saved my life. I, I do. I really do. She loved me enough to judge me. And, and Jesus calls us to judge rightly. The next lie we talked about is authenticity is everything, which is undergirded by the idea that humans are basically, you know, we're good. We don't need to be saved. There's nothing to save us from But the biblical truth that counteracts this is that holiness is everything. See, the world says, be yourself, be true to who you are. Life can be fixed if you'll just love yourself more, do better self-care and put yourself first. So before we get into the biblical data, I want to be careful we avoid extremes here because should we take care of ourselves? Of course. I'm a much better mom when I eat healthy, when I get some exercise, I feel better. I can go play soccer with my son without feeling like I want to die. (laughs) Yes, we should take care of ourselves. Please don't hear me say that we shouldn't do that. 
Sometimes Christians can even fall into a mentality that everything about us is so horrible. I'm just a worm and we don't see ourselves as God sees us. And one thing that we have to understand is, yes, we are fallen. Yes, we are sinful. But we need to recognize that our fallenness was not the way it was originally created to be. We have to ground our understanding of ourselves in two things. One, who we were created to be. And number two, who we are in Christ. As human beings, all of us were created in the image of God. And because of that, there's inherent dignity in every person. If we don't understand this basic thing, we're not going to understand the world, ourselves, or people around us. We're never going to view ourselves rightly if we don't understand what it means to be created in the image of God. This is why we all know murder is wrong. This is why atheists know murder is wrong. Because atheists, Christians, everybody has been made in the image of God. We know that it's wrong to take a human life. Whereas most of the world doesn't have a problem with hunting a deer for dinner. Because we know inherently that the deer wasn't made in God's image. But if we started hunting each other for dinner, it's not just Christians that would have a problem with that. Because the law of God's written our hearts. We know this. We know. So here's the key point. Every one of us was made in the image of God, but every one of us has distorted that image in some way. Every one of us. So pursuing holiness is the process that slowly but surely begins to repair that distortion. And so this, this process is called sanctification. And it's something that will continue throughout our lives as we are conformed into the image of Christ more and more. It doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. We still sin, of course. But God moves us along to more and more light. And so... That's why holiness is so important because we all have distorted that image. And one day, nobody's going to get there on this side of heaven, (laughs) but that sanctification process will be complete. And then that image will, will be restored without distortion. But here in the now, we all have distorted that in some way. And so we can't, we have to, to understand all this. We have to understand God's holiness, that God is holy. It's one of his attributes And holiness means that God can have no unity with sin. Now, again, this is getting into some bad news because we all know, as we just learned, that we're all sinners, right? We all have that sin. But Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So our sin separates us from God because God can have no unity with sin. Our self is broken. That's why we can't trust it. That's why, you know, we shouldn't really follow our hearts or be true to ourselves. Be true to who you are in Christ, but not to your fallen self. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. In the Roman world, in the first century Roman Empire, the cross, we wear crosses on our necklace, like little gold crosses, and it's kind of become this symbol of victory and this symbol of triumph. And, but in the Roman world, the cross was an instrument of death. And it was the worst kind. Not only was it excruciating, that's where we get our word, excruciating, comes from crucifixion, it's the same root word. Not only was it excruciating, but it was shameful. There's hardly a way for us to understand this in modern terms, the, the connotation of shame that was upon the cross. A crucifixion 
was spared for the lowest of the low. Traitors, slaves, Roman citizens got beheaded. They were lucky. The, the cross was spared for the most shameful of criminals. And Jesus said, take that up. And he said to take it up daily. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. Deny yourself, pick up that instrument of death, die to your sin, and follow me. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So the only way to practice discernment is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, that he, he works in us as we stay in his word. And so this process of sanctification, of being made like God, being made holy day after day, looks a little bit like this. That's it right there. <laughs> oh, I just love that so much. Do you not feel like that every day? It's like you're still going up, but you're like tumbling down the escalator as it goes up. <laughs> it's so good. I just could watch it all day. <laughs> that poor guy. I feel really bad. He's probably old. <laughs> All right, so the next lie that we're going to counteract is speak your truth, which is informed by relativism. And the biblical truth that counteracts that is speak the truth, right? My truth doesn't exist. There is no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's only the truth that's rooted in reality. And Jesus teaches that that's him. The truth is a person. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And so we're going to play a little game. This, I do this with high schoolers too, to teach them the difference between what somebody would call a subjective truth claim and an objective truth claim. So a truth claim is anything anybody claims is true, right? So if I say, this is a uh, future bonfire right here, that's a truth claim. I'm claiming something is true about this pallet of wood. If I say this is a Mac computer, I'm making a truth claim. If I say this is a piano, even though it's not, I'm still making a truth claim. So we have to learn to assess truth claims. And so I like to think of truth like this. A subjective truth claim has to do with a preference or opinion. It's based on the subject. It's based on me, what's in between my ears. So it's kind of like saying, Caramel ice cream is the best ice cream flavor. And someone else might say, chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream flavor. Both are truth claims, but can that be tested in reality? It can't. It's an opinion. So it's really not an objective truth claim. It's a subjective truth claim. Now, objective truth, I like to compare to insulin. Any type 1 diabetics in the room? Nobody? Anybody know a type 1 diabetic? Okay, a lot more. So I like to compare objective truth to insulin because you might prefer chocolate ice cream, but when it comes to diabetes, if you prefer Advil to insulin, what's going to happen? You're going to die, right? Remember we talked about ideas have consequences and they'll bear themselves out in reality. So if I say you don't have to take insulin for type 1 diabetes, is that testable in reality? Right, that's not an opinion. That's actually something you can test. 
Now, not all truth claims are true. So a subjective truth claim might be true that I think chocolate ice cream is the best, and an objective truth claim might be false. I might say you don't need insulin, but you can test that in reality to find out if it's true. So we're going to play a little game called insulin or ice cream, okay? I'm going to make a truth claim, and you're going to tell me if it's subjective by saying ice cream, or you're going to tell me if it's objective by saying insulin, okay? Are you ready? Okay. This is a water bottle. Insulin or ice cream? Insulin, Insulin, right. I love water bottles. Ice cream, right. I'm going easy on you right now. It's going to get harder, I promise. Um, These are the most beautiful decorations I've ever seen at a women's conference. Ice cream. I can bench press 300 pounds. Insulin, good. Most high schoolers, they're like, no, you can't, ice cream. So I didn't trick you with that one. That's good. So you get it. You get that there are objective truth claims and subjective truth claims. Now, when it comes to religion and morality, people tend to put religion in the ice cream category, right? They tend to say, well, yes, two plus two equals four. And if I put my money in a bank, I expect to get it back out. I expect them to operate in the world of objective truth. But That got split, and now what you believe about religion, what you believe about God, in the world's eyes, is in that subjective category. That's why when you try to share your faith with people, they say, well, that's just true for you. Because our culture's been trained to think that when it comes to religion, that's all in that ice cream category. It's chocolate versus vanilla. Whatever works for you, whatever you like. But here's what's so interesting Every other religion that I can think of, and I've tried to think through a lot as I, as I go through this, it started with a guy sitting under a tree, getting some kind of revelation or some otherworldly information, then gathering up a bunch of followers to follow that teaching. Like think about Buddha, uh, Muhammad, um, Joseph Smith. It, it's all based on this otherworldly revelation, subjective revelation, ice cream category. But Christianity actually stands or falls on a historical event, right? We talked about this in talk one. It's the resurrection of Jesus. We know this because Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Did you know Christianity is the only religion that's testable in reality? Think about that. If the resurrection of Jesus is a real historical event that happened in reality, then Christianity is true. And because it's exclusive, all the other ones are false. It's testable. Paul's saying that. Test it. I wish I could do a whole talk on just the historical evidence for the resurrection because it's plentiful even outside the Bible. Did you know just by extra biblical sources, you could come to the conclusion that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? It's not just the Bible that claims that. Virtually all historians agree that Jesus' disciples at least believed that they saw him risen from the dead and were willing to be tortured and killed for that belief. Now, a lot of people will die for what they think is true, but these are the guys that would have actually known that it's false. Nobody dies for what they actually know is a lie. You might die for what you believe is true. Like us, we didn't actually see it happen. So we give our lives for our faith. It's based on what we believe is true. But those were the guys that actually saw it happen. So the evidence for that historical event being true is very strong. And if it's true, 
then Christianity is true. And so speak your truth. It's, it's probably not going to offend many people if you just say, like, I just want to speak my truth. But Paul's making a bold claim here. He's saying this is the truth. Christianity is backed by evidence, reason, logic, philosophy, archaeology, and science. In fact, the evidence for the existence of God and the truthfulness of Christianity is so overwhelming that someone would have to will, willfully ignore it, which the Bible actually says they do. Romans 1, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul dealt with, with this. Sometimes I think we think, well, this is just the first time that we've had to deal with this, with, with it being so offensive to say that something is true. See, the philosophers say we're living in a post-truth culture where people don't even really believe this exists anymore. Truth exists. So just to claim that you know something is true is offensive in our culture. But it's not a new thing. Paul dealt with this too. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about the knowledge of Christ being like a fragrance. It has a smell, right? The knowledge of Christ smells like something to people. And he's talked about as they would go around and preach the gospel, they were spreading that smell everywhere. And to God, it smelled beautiful. But then he noted that to some, the ones who were receiving the message, the ones who were being saved, it smelled like the fragrance of life. It smelled so good. And to those who were rejecting the message, to those who were not being saved, it smelled like the hoarder house. It smelled like trash and rotting corpses. It smelled like death. And so I was thinking about this recently. When we share the gospel, I used to try to convince people, you know, just, just really want them to get this. And, and we should be persuasive and loving and as charitable as we can, but we have to speak the whole truth of the message Because to some people, it's going to be the fragrance of life, and to others, it's going to smell like death. And the Holy Spirit does the convicting on that. And I learned this when I wrote a review of Rachel Hollis's book last September. I had a suspicion that the the blog post would find its way around because of how popular her book was. And there wasn't really a shareable article that criticized it from a biblical view. So I, I kind of suspected the, that a few people were going to read this. So I, put, I was very careful to put the gospel in it so that anybody that read it would also read the gospel. And then the emails started pouring in. And I'm telling you, there was not one neutral response. It was either tears, this is a balm to my soul, this is so comforting, and, and it smelled like life and hope. And, and I had ju- almost as many literally cussing me out, calling me judgmental, calling me names. The reaction was stunning. And I was trying to sort through it all, and I realized the gospel's in there. People would say, you think that's good news? You know, just angry. And that's when I thought about Paul. Yeah, the knowledge of Christ has a smell. And and people are going to love it or they're going to hate it. And Paul, by the way, wasn't just talking about going around being really nice to people, feeding the poor, although they did that too. They're just telling people God loves them and being great moral examples. This was in the context of speaking truth, of preaching truth with your words, using words to share the gospel. So I just want to encourage us as we close, as we spread that fragrance to be as loving, as charitable as we can, as persuasive as we can. Learn the arguments, learn apologetics that you can have these pre-gospel conversations, but not to shrink back from sharing the whole truth of God's word, no matter how it's received.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word and just all of the things that you have given us, the tools and the resources that you've given us to use our minds to love you. You said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us as women even to love you more with our minds, to study, to dig in, to make us better evangelists, better moms, better wives, better at our jobs. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each person here. Show us our next steps. For some, it may be reading a book. For others, it may be having that conversation you've been avoiding. I pray that you would lead all of us to your truth. We love you so much. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. For us, it's the fragrance of life. I'm so thankful. In Jesus' name. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.